0: We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that
1: we really need to pay attention.
0: The probabilities
1: are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovich. Joining me today is David Hunter, contrarian macro strategist with 48 years experience. Thanks for joining me today, David. Yeah thanks Tom thanks for having me on again. It's always always great to speak with you and of, of course we have a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff to get through here today. But I recently saw a tweet that you that you put out talking about the semiconductor stocks having both a, a growth and cyclical component. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what type of cycle affects them and and what is the let's say the timeline for each of these cycles?
0: I'm sure. Uh, Some of these are kind of, I consider them the, the, uh, they are the technology, what, um, say, steel and copper and iron ore are to industrial. So they are the commodities of the tech side. Uh, There is definitely a cyclical component to them. Certainly companies like Micron, Texas Instruments um their their orders uh really balloon when you have a strong economy and get cut when when uh, autos and things like that are down so you know some conductor chips are in everything now so there is definitely a tie to the economy but on the other hand they're also very technologically oriented and um so some of it is is growth oriented they're going to continue to be a bigger and bigger part of our um economy in our society as we go forward, so so that's what i mean they do they do trade with the technology side, but they also have some of that cyclical component and you know with us really looking at um you know the market from the standpoint of growth versus value and growth plays when value doesn't and value plays when growth doesn't uh somebody's kind of walking in the middle of that, and they get some of the benefits of tech and some of the benefits of of um, the cyclical growth. Um, and by the way, I think in this next melt up, I think, um, both growth and value are probably going to play. We've kind of rotated back and forth in the past six months. Um, but I, I think we're going to see here that both play. So, um, you know, some of these will get that benefit too.
1: Mm-hmm. So as we've seen a massive semiconductor shortage in the world right now, so does this play into the growth part of the equation for you? Um, well, it's probably both. I mean, again, it's um,
0: the shortage is because we opened up so fast. You know, we went from total shutdown to opening up and you just don't have the inventories to satisfy. And don't forget, we've had for many cycles, this just in time inventory. Uh, we moved to that probably back in the 80s. And so we got caught here uh with very short inventories because they kind of assume normal demand and you know with all the uh monetary and fiscal stimulus we went way beyond normal demand and then you add in you went from total shutdown to to opening up you got pent up demand growing you know pushing pushing demand so so all of a sudden you got this real shortage um so i, I mean i think that's probably as much Uh, can be explained by the pandemic and and some of the inventory management as anything, but there is also a growth component because chips are becoming a bigger part of automobiles, a bigger part of, you know, washing machines, a bigger part of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and obviously we, with the shutdown, we became even more dependent on tech. Uh, So that's another story there is, uh, you know, you're, you're moving to a much more virtual world where, where again, chips are going to be in big demand. Mm-hmm.
1: So, David, every every time we speak, we talk about the melt up that you foresee happening in the markets here. So, what do you base the targets of, let's say, five thousand SP, and P, forty thousand Dow, 18000 $18, thousand dollar or eighteen thousand Nasdaq? What do you What do you base these on? Are they historical precedents that inform this type of market behavior?
0: Not really. It's really looking at um, you know technicals, fundamentals, um, kind of where we are in terms of sentiment, uh, what the macro looks like, and then just kind of um, looking at a general ballpark of of what that probably feeds into. Um, I don't want to say it's see of the pants, but it's not. There's no scientific uh, data driven uh, methodology there. Um, you know, I've been pretty good on it this cycle, but it's it's not, you know, there's no magic
1: to it. Mm. So why have you recently raised these targets as well, David?
0: Um, partly because we did have um, the rotations and, you know, I've, I've seen the sentiment stay pretty restrained here. And it just tells me there's more legs because uh, amazingly, you know, you have a market that's more than doubled and, in, in, you know, at least from the standpoint of the NASDAQ, and almost doubled in the you know the Dow and the S and P, and yet what I see out there is uh, an investor that basically keeps talking about the top being here, um, you know, nervously in the market. But you know, everybody can all you, as you saw this past week, all you need is a couple of days of sell off, and people are right back to saying, hey, maybe we saw the highs. Uh, this thing could go down, you know. 10, 20, 30, 40% in a hurry. So that tells me you've got a very nervous investor out there. You know, that wall of worry is very much intact. And that just just argues to me that you've got more upside.
1: So, what happens when, when we hit these targets, David? Do we see a, a sharp correction or a, or a drawn out grind lower?
0: Yeah, I, I talk about letting it play out. There's no one. Way it can top out, so you could have you know a top um, be there for a day or two and reverse pretty quickly and be down, you know, uh, in the first step down in a hurry, and then you know then have a uh, you know a sell off of ten percent or who knows what, and then then a rally back to retest and not get all the way back. Um, you could you know you could stay up at the top for. You know, a matter of weeks before you roll. Um, It's hard. It's impossible to know, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think and again, I can always change my targets again. I've always said uh, up until now, my targets were conservative and I wouldn't be surprised if they were exceeded with these numbers. I'm not I'm not so worried about that. I I really do think it's these are aggressive numbers Um, I think we will hit them. It doesn't mean they're going to precisely be right, and we're going to, you know, turn on the dime and go down. That's that's part of what you have, certainly on Twitter and elsewhere. Is people see a number, and they think you, you know, you can invest to that number, it's going to hit, and then very predictably go the other way. And I, that's not what a forecast is. It's saying this is the ballpark. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable with my numbers, um, but who knows whether You reverse it, well. Let's let's look at um, bonds this week. You know, we we got down. I had a number of one twenty as a target on the ten year, and it overshot that a little bit, which I'm not surprised by, and got down to one fifteen or thereabouts. Um, Now you're back up to one thirty, and you're only a couple days removed from that that uh, you know one fifteen. So so in that case, it reversed pretty quick. My guess is you'll probably um, from some point make another run at 120. You know, I don't know whether it only goes to 125 or goes back to 120 or doesn't, but it's not unusual to get a, a quick sell off and then another run. Um, and just fall short. And then you, you know, if you fall short and start rolling over, then you have more confidence that, hey, we've probably seen the highs. I think equities will be very much the same thing is um, you know, it's possible you tick up. And then, you just, you know, something something happens and people get very negative very quickly and you're, you're down one big step, you know, 15% or something. But more likely, you get some sell-off, uh, you know, and then you go back the other way and so-called retest a high, that probably a lower high. Um, and then I think you see, you know, from there, pretty fast on
1: So is there some type of catalyzing event that will spark this global bust, as you call it, David? Um, Well, I I think there are certainly
0: things that will be contributing factors to it. Um, Probably the biggest one being inflation causing the Fed to tighten. That would be my number one candidate for what triggers the bust. And I just think we have um, an economy because of the pandemic, as well as you know, what we were doing before the pandemic, a very leveraged, very high-risk economy that because of the pandemic now has much less resiliency than it had prior to the pandemic. And it just doesn't have that ability to withstand a lot of tightening. Uh, And yet inflation is going to force, I think, the Fed to, you know, they can put it off for so long and then say, hey, we've got to respond to this because inflation keeps heating up. I think that's coming before the end of this year. And if that's the case, they're going to be uh, forced to tighten. And I just don't think it's going to take a lot of tightening to start causing problems in both the economy and the market. And and you know, people say, well, yeah, but won't the Fed come back around and, and just stop tightening and start printing again? Well, inflation doesn't just stop on a dime either they're going to be caught between a rock and a hard place. They're going to be caught between inflation that doesn't seem to want to stop stop accelerating and and a market telling them that it doesn't have a lot of um, resilience to that tightening. They're going to have to choose between those two. They may initially choose to let up on the tightening, but I think very quickly they're going to say, hey, that didn't work. Inflation's still heating up. So, you know, again, the Fed's not going to have an easy time of it once this really starts, starts coming.
1: Mm-hmm. So do you think that the, the housing price boom that we've seen in recent months will also kind of extend into that timeline?
0: I do. I, I think we had a respite here in the last couple of months. Uh, uh, you know, rates ticked up, obviously, to 175 on the 10-year. That pushed mortgage rates up. Um, you have an overheated, at least in the U.S. and I, and I think elsewhere, an overheated uh, housing market. And it caused people to kind of back off and say, I, I just can't, you know, I I was willing to chase, but I'm not willing to chase this far. You know, the cost of the mortgage is up and the cost of the house is up. So you, you had a pause. I think now that you've brought rates back down, um that's probably going to stimulate some activity here of those that were interested but just backed away so i have a feeling we're going to see a second wind in housing here between now and the end of the year uh and probably the same story with autos um you know with rates down so so that's i think that's part of why i think you you reaccelerate the economy here
1: david are there any safe haven assets um in this bust scenario, does everything just get slashed lower, and maybe what rebounds first?
0: Yeah, the the safe havens will be, I think, uh, Treasuries and the U.S. dollar. Um, I I think you're going to see as much as everybody's negative on the dollar. Um, I don't mean you know in tr- from trading perspective here, but I mean generally, people think the dollar is losing losing its clout. And people are losing faith in the U.S. What I think we'll see is what we see at every uh, in every crisis is people will run back to the dollar. People around the world, investors around the world, will run back to the dollar as as the safest currency in the world. Uh, they see our our country as more stable than elsewhere. Um, we have our problems, but bigger problems overseas. So, so I think that will. You know The dollar, I am looking for a, a dollar decline here, um, maybe down to 85 or even 80 on the index. But from there, I think, think um, a flight safety will push the dollar up during the bus to as much as 120, maybe even as high as 140. So so that's one of the assets that I think goes up in the bust. The other one, as I said, was treasuries. And I do think you'll see a 0% 10-year treasury uh, in the midst of the bust just because there are so few places you can run and hide. And, you know, if, if the bust is going to do what I think, which is taking an inflation problem and bring it to a deflationary situation, um, you know, people are going to run to the one thing that's government guaranteed and, and where if, in if you're in deflation, um, even a very low interest rate or no interest rate is a, a real return. Mm-hmm. Um, so, those are the two places I think do well. Uh, you know, I think the market's going to be a very broad sell-off. Certainly, utilities will get down less than um, you know technology or industrials um, or energy, those kind of things. But but um, you know, I think everything goes down, and pretty much everything goes down in the equity market
1: what are what would be some of the downstream effects of the dollar getting up to one forty david we've We've heard that that um or I've heard before that that would really break um a lot of normal you know systems and and trades in in the market. So what would the downstream effects of that be?
0: yeah, first I don't know if it'll get that high. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may only get to one twenty, but I do think one twenty is realistic. Um, and if it gets there, it's going to be there momentarily. I don't think we're going to see it there long enough to cause much damage. Okay. Um, it's certainly going to. It's certainly. I think, as as always, these fiat currencies. The real story is not just that currency, but it's the other currencies it's trading off of. It's a relative trade. I think it's more of a story about what's what's going to happen to the euro. I mean, I think Europe is really going to be the story this time, like we were the story in 2008-9. I, you know, again, it doesn't, I'm not forecasting this, mm-hmm. but you have to wonder if the Euro can survive this, the the bust. You know, it's, you've got, you've got countries uh, in Europe that are bound by the, what what goes on with the Euro. They, you know, it, particularly Italy and Spain, um, that didn't have the luxury of saying we're gonna just devalue our own currency and, and pull ourselves out of this. You know, they were there Germany can handle it, maybe France can handle it. I don't know if Italy and Spain can handle it. And um, you know, obviously the euro part of the euro going down as far as you know the reciprocal of the dollar is that whole story. But I but I wonder, you know, is the euro gonna be able to, to stay. You know, stay together in that. So, so that's. I think the story is not just the dollars. Really, you know, some of these other currencies.
1: So how do how do gold and silver perform in the bust, David? Will the miners behave differently, and are they, let's say, a leader or a follower to the metals prices?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm of course looking for twenty five hundred on gold and you know forty five fifty on silver before we get to the bust. So they're going to correct but they're not correcting from here. They're correcting from much higher levels than this. And, and they, could, they could end up coming back to where we are today. Um, uh, what I do feel is wherever they correct to, it'll be far less uh, in terms of the downside than what we'll see in the equity indexes. Uh, so if the equity indexes are down 70 or 80%, you know, maybe maybe gold and silver are down, you know, less than half that, maybe a third of that. The miners certainly will be hit harder than the metals themselves, um, but I think they will probably turn uh, much sooner than some, uh, the rest of the market, because the response to the bust is going to be on the part of every central bank, money and more money and more money after that. And you know there'll be a knee-jerk reaction, or certainly what I think ultimately is a correct reaction, that you got to own gold and silver. Mm-hmm.
1: So considering these, let's say the the twenty five dollars gold target and the $45, $50 silver target, are the the same fundamentals um going to drive the prices to that point that are um, present in the market right now? Or is there something else that's going to that we're going to need to push gold and silver to those prices?
0: Yeah, I think it's just the degree of the inflation. Um, momentum. I I think what we're going to see is a combination of a very weak dollar and inflation that is not peaking out, but is accelerating. And I think right now, you've got a narrative out there. If I were to guess the consensus right now, and particularly after this past week, I think people are thinking inflation is peaking the economy is not as strong. You know, we had kind of a surge with the reopening, but that the economy is, you know, basically at risk of rolling over and certainly of moderating a lot. Um and so that they're not so worried about inflation. And that's what I think has taken the wind out of the sails of of the short gold and silver move we had, you know, um and I, I think it's as usual. Um, Wall Street kind of gets caught in uh, the narratives, and then has to, sh- you know, shift back in another direction. So I think what we're going to see here in the next couple months is that the narrative shifts back to, "Hey, inflation is not stopping here; inflation is actually accelerating, and the economy does have a second wind here." So we're right back to the worries we had just a couple months ago, you know, back in probably April, May, that- You know, inflation was a real risk. So I I think that combined with, you know, a dollar that's down towards 85 um, will be probably the biggest um, tailwinds. Um, And then, you know, people want to talk about interest rates. I'm calling for rates to move up here. But basically, I'm calling for inflation to outpace any nominal, you know, rise in rates. So even though I can see the 10-year moving towards 2%, ultimately 25 Inflation is going to be keeping the real rate going the other way.
1: So, in a way, would it be fair to say, David, that the the let's say the big time precious metals investors are believing that inflation this this inflation is transitory narrative that we've been hearing at this time?
0: Yeah, I think I, I certainly think that's what this last move down in in gold and silver was. I would I would argue, particularly the miners got hit harder than the metals. Um, I would argue that it was a little bit like March of 2020. i I think you don't hear much talk about this, but I think more institutions use these ETFs than anybody's paying attention to and so I think and particularly hedge funds and and they're they're traders they're not investors you know they go into um, you know the the gold and silver ETFs and the minor ETFs. And then when the narrative changes in their mind, they're all out. You know, they're not saying, "Oh, well, I'm going to take a little bit off the table." They're all out. You know, these hedge funds, and I think they're jerking. You know, the prices around. Uh, you know, it's the liquidity is not there for hedge funds to be, you know, the, the elephant in the room going in and coming out. So I, I think a lot of this is is that. You know, we can sit and try to analyze it on a fundamental basis or whatever. I think it has more to do with supply and demand than those ETFs.
1: So I've, I've heard you speak before about your views on manipulations in the, in the metals markets. Can you explain what you mean on spoofing and what it means versus the, the broader manipulation of the metals prices? Because I think there's, that's an interesting distinction that you make.
0: Yeah. I, spoofing is really, um, you know, kind of, uh, scalping a penny here or a penny there you know and I think that's going on in markets forever um, and so when you hear um, that you know big banks have have manipulated the markets people are taking the spoofing thing that is a reality and extrapolating that out or exaggerating that out into saying oh the banks are are manipulating the prices holding prices down because of you know X y or z. and I'm just not in that camp that that's the reason the markets are where they are that's the reason why gold and silver have lagged. You know we had we had gold go from 250 to, to 1900 in, in the decade of you know 2001 to 2011. Um, I didn't hear anybody talking about how they were manipulating it up. Uh, so then you get this long consolidation that has lots of reasons for it: some fundamental, some technical, some other things. Um, and it just, I think it's just—I think—it's a natural tendency for people who were expecting, including myself, to see gold and silver, you know, come out of that consolidation long, long before it did. you, know, you had basically seven or eight-year consolidation of that decade-long run but it was a long run i mean that was a great run from 250 to 1900 so um, so i think um, you get a narrative out there that gets repeated often and it fits people's mindset that all oh, those banks are always playing games with us and always you know they're not to be trusted etc and and it gets stated by people who are in this business as analysts of what, what have you and it gains a life of its own with you know Presumed credibility. And I, I'm not saying there's no manipulation. I'm just saying I think we use that as an excuse every time that that the um, gold and silver don't do what we expect it to do. And don't forget, you had probably it's it's a market where you have, you know, I don't what other what other market do we have? Maybe maybe some of the MEMs and things where you have um, investors that are obsessed with it or you know in, in the gold case called gold bugs you know people had said I don't care whether gold goes up or down it's I'm holding this through thick and thin well they're not saying that anymore because they didn't expect thin to be eight years or, <laughs> or ten years so so a lot of them have kind of become a little bit more skeptical of gold and silver um, I, I think it's just all of those things surround the metals particularly gold um, and and rather than um, be able to explain it on a fundamental basis or a technical basis, it's it's uh, it makes sense to think oh it's manipulation. And and of course we do have you know a lot of imbalances out there in terms of the big banks and I, I presume there's a lot of hedges. I don't know their positions precisely, but you know the the narrative is out there that you know they they're, they're going to be big losers. If gold and silver take off, so by you know by that argument, you assume they're gonna do anything they can to hold it down. Um, I, you know maybe i'm maybe I'm the one that's wrong, but I'm just not in that camp. I think we're we're adding two and two and getting eight. you know we're taking some things that are true and extrapolating into things that aren't true. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable because we've seen it in many markets that have been out of favor for a long period of time. I'm pretty comfortable saying this is, you know, more, it's just not their time yet. You know, and, and let's not forget, I mean, you know, they've had big runs. They just haven't had a big run in the last 10 months.
1: Mm-hmm. So David, you, you mentioned narrative there, and I'd like to get your thoughts and maybe have a bit more of a, let's say an explicit, um, description of how you see the inflation narrative playing out here um you you did mention that it could give way to deflation so can you explain to us how you see this this inflation narrative um, evolving let's say over the next <clears throat> this next cycle here
0: yeah so i'll i'll contrast my forecast is one thing what mm-hmm. the consensus narrative is is another thing so right yeah. now as i said i think the narrative is that inflation is peaking for the cycle um, and that you know we've we've kind of discounted the inflation into the market now we have to worry that it's going to come back out um, so last week that was what I think was the start of thinking we got to you know reprice these for inflation that's rolling over um, my forecast is that that's not the case that inflation um, over the next six months is going to accelerate. Um, and and that it's, you know, the narrative that's going to follow that, because narratives follow the market, the narrative that's going to follow that is going to be what we saw a couple months ago, that inflation is breaking out, it's going to be something the Fed's going to have to deal with a lot sooner rather than later, and that that's, you know, that's a problem. So, um, you know, I think between now and the end of the year, that's that's the narrative that's going to flow. You're going to go from inflation's peaking to oh no, oh my god, inflation's you know reaccelerating, uh, and it's going to be a real problem for the Fed. Um, how that translates into the market, I think initially here um, you get a beneficiary of rediscounting, you know, having the discount reacceleration of inflation, and how that will help certain groups in the market. Um, I don't think the reacceleration in the next couple months is going to be so fast um, that it stops the tech slash growth move. So I think you get both move working for a little while. But again, it's you're going to evolve from one view to the next. It's not like you go from one view to the other overnight. So it's in that evolution that some investors will be earlier in accumulating. The beneficiaries of inflation, other investors will be, you know, later accumulators. that will help to drive the last move up in, in those stocks, and other investors are going to be sticking by the growth story because they're not they're not the early adapters of that new narrative. So um, it's you know it's how markets evolve. I think we, particularly on the retail side. Investors want to think everything is in a straight line and it is simple. You go from this to the other overnight, everything evolves. It doesn't happen overnight. So, I don't know if that answers your question of what you know how I use narratives around when I speak of narratives. That's what I'm really looking at is you know, narratives help drive markets, but they don't have, you know, it doesn't happen all overnight, it happens over a period of time.
1: Mm-hmm. So do we get to a point when we see responses from the Fed creating more and more currency where it stops being as effective as it has been to, to backstop the markets? And is that going to be associated with um, even more meaningful inflation?
0: Yeah, I, I look at it more from the standpoint of it's not so much that it's the money is not as uh, effective, Or doesn't the markets don't respond to it? I look at it more as um, they aren't going to be able to. The unwind could happen so fast that their response, as quick as their response might be, it won't be quick enough. So most of the response will come in reaction to the decline rather than in in anticipation of the decline. So. In a, in a normal cycle where you don't have the kind of leverage we have today, um, they might be able to you know get in there before the markets you know given up much more than twenty or twenty five percent. In a in a leveraged system like we have today, that's unprecedented. Um, I think things can move so much faster and, and deeper before they really get even even acting. As, as I say, it's not just their reaction, it's what's right-sized, you know, what's the right-sized reaction. So let's say they come in with a couple trillion, and then a couple weeks later, um, come in with another couple trillion. Uh, or maybe, and, and maybe, but maybe the reaction that they need to have is 10 or 15 trillion it won't happen all in one, you know, they're not gonna, this is so unprecedented, as big as what they did last, you know, March of 2020 was, March and beyond 2020, uh, March and beyond that, um, this is gonna be so much bigger. So, uh, because, you know, the unwind is gonna be bigger. So I I just think it takes time for, consensus bodies even when they're moving far faster than they've ever moved before to to grasp what they need i mean i don't think wall street can grasp it so i don't expect the fed to be able to you know get their hands around it and come up with the right policy it's going to it's going to again it's something that's going to evolve whether that if evolution takes 3 months or
1: 6 months it's just not going to take 2 weeks mm-hmm. And as you say, in in certain cases, they're they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, if with with the tools that they have available to them, right? Yeah,
0: the tools they have available to them, and the fact that um, they're you know, you don't go from one problem to the other overnight. So you may have both problems at once. You may have inflation accelerating at the same time that the market's decelerating. And what are they going to choose? You know, they. Initially, they're going to say, Hey, our job isn't the stock market. Uh, as much as everybody wants to accuse them of managing the stock market, they're going to say, We got to deal with the inflation. But somewhere in there, when the market's down 30% or wherever, they're not going to be able to ignore that either. So they're probably going to, you know, and again, they're going to have, I'm, I'm guessing, they're not going to be waiting for meetings to make their decisions. You will have, you know, phone calls and special meetings, et cetera, as we saw in 2008. So, um, but it just, I don't think anybody's prepared for
1: what's coming. So you've been, you've been calling for a pullback in the oil price too, David. So why is this? And what is your long-term view on the oil price?
0: Yeah, my long-term view is that we're going to see 300 plus on oil next cycle. So once we get past the bust, and we go into what's going to be an inflation-driven industrial cycle around the world, I think oil demand's is going to be through the roof. Uh, and more importantly, supply is not going to be there. Um, so you're going to have a really tight uh, supply-demand situation, and it'll drive oil up. But before we get there, we've got this little thing called a bust, and I think it's going to drive demand through the floor. And as a result of that, I think you can get oil back, certainly back into the 20s, and maybe back as low as 10. So I'm I'm not sure whether we'll get all the way back there, um, or whether it'll be somewhere in the mid 20s. But but I think that's where we're heading in the bust. You know, we obviously aren't at the bust yet, so we've got another, let's say, another six months to go, um, where oil could kind of move up and down. I'm kind of guessing we're probably in a trading range between the high 70s, you know, you you may not make a new high or may make a minor new high, uh, you know, with the high being what, 76. Um, So somewhere in the mid to high 70s is probably the upper band and, you know, the lower band for the next two or three months uh or three to six months, I'm not sure, um, is probably somewhere in the 50s. So you're probably in that kind of a range. I don't know where it goes exactly. Um I could, you know, a couple scenarios you could you could see this thing up to you know the low 70s here, come back down to lower lows uh from what we had yesterday or whenever low was the last couple days. Um so you know back through the mid 60s, back down into the lower 60s, and then and then rally back up towards the highs uh with the inflation move. Um I think I think we're in a trading range here uh for for the next you know until until this cycle is over. Uh and then I think with the bust it'll it'll fall with you know pretty much everything pretty hard. And like I said, get back to maybe the mid-20s, maybe you know, mid teens, maybe as long as 10.
1: Mm-hmm. So what role does ESG play in this um this this, let's say this forecast going forward? Does it constrain supply to the point that it helps drive the price here?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I I think um it's a huge error we're making um in in acting like we can you know, say by 2035, we're going to be all electric cars and we're going to be, you know, moving away from fossil fuels. Um, you're you're going to have, just like we had this clash of uh, an economic shutdown and just-in-time inventories, you're going to have a clash with, you know, oil's a lot harder. The easy oil's been found.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the much harder oil uh, is the deep water, et cetera. And you're going to have, a, and that takes time to develop the infrastructure for all of that. Um, at the same time, you're you know you're closing down pipelines. Um, you're you know you're discouraging uh, fossil fuels in a lot of ways. Um, so I think we're going to have a situation where, when the economy reopens because of this huge fiscal and monetary stimulus response to the bust. You're going to have several years where you have just like we've had. I think this last year is a microcosm of what we're going to see, uh, except in a much bigger fashion. Worldwide demand through the roof, and you just can't turn on the spigots. And, you know, there's we're going to have peak oil. I have no doubt. You get out to the mid 2020s, and peak oil is going to be the story of of oil again. You know that oil oil supply has peaked and Demands through the roof, and you know, the only thing that go is price. Um, it will stimulate, you know, deep water drilling and other things. They're not going to be able to walk away from it because you can't replace, you can't fill the demand with, um, you know, solar or wind or any of the other alternative fuels. Uh, it's just not going to be realistic. So, I think for this decade, fossil fuel is still gonna you know it's gonna come front and center and it's gonna be a very big uh short supply versus demand story and that's why i say 300 plus on you know on crude and i don't know what plus is you know is it 350 is it 450 i don't know um but i think it's gonna be a big number um but it'll be coming from a, you know, as I said, a lower place from here. So, you know, could be, you know, coming up from ten or twenty.
1: And and as you say, not necessarily just from an energy standpoint, but even a raw material standpoint, the amount of oil that we need to produce all of these plastics and all of the the parts that go into the windmills, electric cars, all of that stuff. That's that's a huge demand component as well that can't be replaced.
0: Yeah, if if you fast forward to the middle of a what I am calling the worst economic uh, downturn we've had in the post World War II era, so worse than two thousand eight nine, across the world, including China, um, and then the decision is we've got to do fiscal and monetary stimulus to to pull us out of that. Uh, yeah, we're already seeing that fiscal stimulus is going to be very oriented towards infrastructure. Towards you know everything from electric grid to roads and bridges to um, you know the electric uh, vehicles and other alternative um, usage, so you can see that it's going to be an industrial recovery. It's not you know you'll get some of the stimulus to the consumer, but it's going to be a whole different cycle than we've had. And industrial cycles, you know, we haven't had one in 40 years. Industrial-driven cycles demand a lot more energy. Um, so I think that, too, is going to be part of that demand side. Um, and I just, I think it's a collision course that can't be avoided.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've you've mentioned several times this industrial-driven um, recovery, David. So can you spell out what you what you mean by that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, just kind of what I just said. I, I think it's because on the physical side, a big part of the, the stimulus is going to be aimed at infrastructure. Infrastructure is industrial. And, and at the same time, I think we're going to have um, reshoring in this country, um, particularly if we have a change in administration in 2024. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, a lot of um, a lot more. Uh, movement on the part of companies saying, we won't, you know, supply chain issues and everything else we've seen, geopolitics tells us it's not worth it to just look at the cost structure when we determine where we're going to build plants or where we're going to build our, our, you know, um, business. So I think, you know, we certainly know it's the case in chips, right? I mean, you know, there's real fear about the dependence on Taiwan and China uh, and and Asia for our chips. Um, And so you're going to see that happen. You know, more more plants being built here for that. I think we're going to see it in autos. I think we're going to see it in steel. I think we're going to see it in a lot of places that we we are going to come back this way. Now, I don't know how fast. I don't know what the politics will be. Um, But I think at the margin, that's going to be part of the industrialization uh, of the next cycle. Um, And then on top of that, like I said, it's just the whole government spending is going to be towards infrastructure, which means industrial rather than, you know, in the past, what have we done? We've stimulated housing. We've stimulated um, consumer spending. The consumer, if I'm right about this market, you know, the wealth effect is going to be pretty big. And it's gonna take some time to dig out from under, you know, if if we have a 70 or 80 percent hit to the market, uh, and if we have you know big jump in unemployment, etc., those first couple of years out of the trough, the consumer is not gonna be in the kind of shape where they can just say, hey, we have pent-up demand, we're gonna go spend. Um, so yeah you know, i I don't know if it's all gonna work out that way, but I think the tendency will be that industrial will be bigger a bigger component of recovery than we've seen in the last forty years
1: mm-hmm. so david as as we wrap up here, would you mind sharing with us your your targets for the metals and um mining indexes for this year i'm um, sure i'm I'm looking for gold to twenty five hundred. And then, like I
0: said, it can correct in the bust back probably towards this area. Maybe it, you know, it comes back to 1,800, maybe it only gets back to 2,000. Um, on silver, 45 to 50. Um, silver's a more uh, economically sensitive metal, so I'm guessing the volatility to the downside in the bust will be greater. But again, if if we're up at 50, um, you know, it probably doesn't get much below 30, 35. So it's above here. Uh, maybe it does, maybe it gets back here, but I, I just don't see from these levels, a lot of downside risk, um, even in the bust. Um, you know, downside risk from where they get to, but not from here. Um, and, and in terms of, um, you know, the, the miners, I think the, the small miners will outperform the majors as they usually do. And in, in bull market runs, um, I think you could see um, the small miners certainly could see doubles or more from current levels. Um, and the, the majors probably, you know, 75% upside from here. Mm-hmm. And then and again, that's just for this year or and it could spill over into next, but probably this year after the bust. I mean, it's many, many multiples of where we are today. I mean, uh, you know, if gold goes to 10,000 plus and that plus could mean, you know, 12,000, 15,000, I have no idea. If silver goes to um, 300 plus and that could mean four or 500, I have no idea. Mm. Um, You know, you're talking miners that can go up tenfold or more, you know, maybe much more.
1: And as you and I have spoken about before, <clears throat> you were saying that the miners will ultimately become almost like the the next dot com bubble, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, I like to say that is that the miners will be to the next cycle, not not now, but yeah. after the bust yep. to the next cycle, which is probably twenty twenty three to twenty twenty nine, something like that. Um, will be to that cycle what dot com was to the nineteen nineties. Um, and it's been a long time since we've seen, you know, the, and, and all commodities will play very big, but, uh, I think they'll be the top of the list in terms of, you know, inflation, inflation beneficiaries and, and kind of the, the dollar after it's big run during the bust will be under pressure for the rest of the decade. All of those things will play well for the miners, I think.
1: Excellent, David, do you have anything else you'd like to add, um, before we conclude here? um let's
0: see i would just say people should be cognizant of the fact that we are 39 years into a secular bull market so uh as much as there's you know maybe as much as 15 to 25% upside in the melt up uh depending on which index you look at um and and uh, that's you know normally an annual annual or two-year return. <laughs> um, just know you're getting awfully close to mm-hmm. what I think is the other side. So, um, you know, just kind of looking forward, know that it's going to be harder to sell at the top because everybody's going to be giving you a bullish story. Um, know how psychology influences markets and and be aware that, um, you know, if you get too greedy, you may be uh, you may be surprised at how fast your profits disappear.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent, David. And of course, you're available on Twitter um, at Dave H. Contrarian. And you also write a, a quarterly letter by subscription, right?
0: Yes, that's exactly right. If anybody's interested in the letter, it is by subscription, which means there's a cost to it. Um, you can uh, direct message me on Twitter um, and I'll be glad to get right back to you.
1: Excellent, David. Thanks so much for your time today. Okay. Thanks, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.